Hello and welcome back to the Access Able podcast. Uh, my name is Carrie-Anne Lightley. I'm your host and head of marketing at Access Able. And this podcast is um, being aired during Cervical Cancer Prevention Week. Um, and we'll be discussing the challenges that disabled people encounter in accessing screening appointments, um, challenges with medical facilities, logistical difficulties and how to combat them, as well as the importance of not delaying these crucial appointments. So I'd like to welcome our guest, Kerry Thompson. Kerry, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hello, everyone. Hello, Carrie. How are you? Um, I am Kerry Thompson. I am a full-time wheelchair user. I have a rare form of muscular dystrophy, just like me, very rare. I am a disability blogger. I also work for MD UK on the Changing Places campaign, which is a dream come true, if anyone can say about that, that about toilets. Thank you, Kerry. Amazing. And, and you're known, aren't you, as the, as the toilet queen? another access able ambassador nick named me it several years ago and it seems to have stuck but i love it amazing amazing and very relevant actually to our conversation today because some of the things that we'll be talking about today um point towards the importance of things like hoist access not only in toilets but in medical facilities as well so i'd like to start off by sharing a little bit with our listeners to help them understand the challenges around this area of um, cervical screenings, et cetera, for disabled people. So I'm going to start off with my first question, which um, I'd like to ask you to share um, an instance that you've found where um, sort of the lack of preparedness or um, the lack of accessible infrastructure in medical facilities made it challenging for you as a disabled person to attend a screening appointment? My story goes back many, many years. Um, my first incident, I fought for 10 years to gain access to a cervical smear. Um, I had no issues up until I moved. So before that, the nurse was coming out with a district nurse. Everything was fine. And then I moved from one estate to another. And I found that it was impossible. My GP surgery had no access to be able to help. There was no hoist. There wasn't a bed. The staff weren't trained. So every year they were sending through letters. And bearing in mind that I'd had just had a cervical smear just before I moved and it came back with abnormalities so that's why I was being recalled in um but my GP surgery kept sending letters and every time I kept phoning and saying I know I'm overdue but can you cater for my needs and it was always a no I'm really sorry we can't okay so what do I do I don't know there was never an option of going in and speaking to the doctor or being referred somewhere else 
it was just a straight no we can't help you until it got to around 10 years and I just thought oh you know here's another letter let's go you know really create now so I did and the doctor was horrified didn't understand why it taken 10 years in all fairness I will put my hands up and say I probably didn't push as much as I could have done because you put it to the back of your mind I think when you are disabled and you are so used to the word no no you cannot no we have no access you become so numb to it that sometimes you think okay it's fine I'll just deal with it and I think that's kind of what I'd got to and I would assume that you know continuing to read those letters you know you sort of tried to put it to the back of your mind because although this is a worrying situation it's one where you've been shown that you have no control over the outcome at this point yeah. there's nothing do about it so you've tried to put it to the back of your mind but then I would assume that every time you receive a letter all of those worries and anxieties and all of that what if is then kind of pushed to the front of your mind again and and I can imagine that being very difficult to deal with. Yeah I think when it comes to obviously the word cancer you know is and the cervical screening is done for a reason you know, and there is that fear of what if. But I also kept thinking my body would tell me if there was a problem. It would tell me. So it was very easy for me to kind of just say, OK, not a problem. You can't cater for my needs again. Um, to then be referred to the gynaecology at the hospital. And I think it was that moment that I spoke to the doctor there and she was amazing. But she kind of just turned her chair around, looked directly in my face and said. Terry, I'm going to get you in and we're going to do it and we're going to put you to sleep. And I was like, sorry, what? (laughs) You're going to do what? She said, we're going to keep you in for 24 hours. We're going to put you on a high dependency ward and we're going to do everything. She said, I don't want to keep bringing you in to do test after test. I would rather just get it all done, all in one go. And I think when I looked at my husband and he was, okay, so do I need to help you get on the bed? Do you need a hoist? What's going on? I was like, no, I'm going to be put under. And I think it was that realisation there that it was as serious as it could have been because she had a very serious face and she was very concerned that it had taken so long for me to come in and see someone to actually say there's a problem and and I guess that you know so just to to be clear for our listeners you know the things that you've been asking for during that 10-year period was access to to a bed that you could get onto ultimately that would move up and down so that you could get onto it and access to a a hoist to help you get onto the bed yeah and you know I would say and I would guess that a lot of people listening would say that you would expect that that would be available in any kind of a medical setting you know this is not asking for the world this is not asking for anything complex or difficult 
actually um it is simply asking for the tools that you need to be able to access that service and and the fact that it had got 10 years down the line and you know as as you say you were able to put it back to the back of your mind but also that will have impacted you know your overall sense of well-being your overall sense of how you felt in your body Absolutely. yeah and th- that simple realization of how serious it could have actually been I mean I would like to add I am fine that everything was fine but that thought of having to go in for a pre-op and go in and speak to you know the anaesthetist the doctor the surgeon and all of that just for a smear test and it wasn't I didn't just have a smear test you know there was a biopsy taken you know there was um, an out of date um, coil that needed replacing so there was other certain things that they did but you know she wanted to completely wash me out she wanted to take a biopsy she wanted to do a smear test so there was more than just the one thing but that could have been avoided if you think of the the amount of pressure that the NHS is already under for a simple task of a smear test of a bed and a hoist that could have been done at the GP or the district nurse could have come to my home like they used to in my old GP surgery. It blows my mind yeah. to the point of that the amount of money they spent on me for those appointments and that surgery and aftercare for what? A simple smear test. It's a, it's, a, it's a very good point in that yeah if, if the if the resource had been there in the first place the resource to 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 get you what you needed quickly would have we assume been a fraction of of the cost and the resource Absolutely. that was actually needed yeah. 10 years down the line yeah. and I suppose the other thing that I want to bring out here is that you know although I suppose you you will have gone through a lot of mixed emotions at that time because although you've kind of finally got what you've been asking for, you've finally got some help, you've finally got someone who is taking you seriously and validating your experience and we we cannot underestimate the difference that that makes. But then you're also being told, oh, you have to come in for a pre-op, you have to be under anaesthetic, you have to go onto a high dependency unit, you have to stay overnight in hospital. And all of that is daunting. All of that is scary. And, you know, we we all have our own concerns and stuff about that. But, you know, concerns about the anaesthetic and how that's going to work and how it's going to make you feel. So I think what I'm trying to say is that this became something that caused so much upheaval, not only for you personally, but for the system that could have entirely been avoided. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, to give an alternative perspective, I'd I'd like to just for a little bit, just talk about my own experience here, which is, you know, I am a wheelchair user. I have cerebral palsy. I am in the fortunate position where I am able to transfer onto a standard GP surgery bed, etc. So, you know, I, I, I was able to make that work. But my cerebral palsy means that I have increased muscle tension and muscle spasticity and that something like a cervical smear appointment is too much for my nervous system to cope with. And that means that my muscles spring back. If you can imagine the importance of being relaxed in an appointment like this, it's impossible for me to relax my muscles. 
So I'd had um, a couple of experiences of quite traumatic screenings because of that and experiences of healthcare professionals who who just looked a bit frightened when I got through the door to be honest um and it wasn't until I myself had a result of abnormal cells and I had to go in to have a biopsy and have the cells removed that I had a conversation with a GP about some medication that would help me to intensely relax my muscles during that appointment and so we tried it and it made a world of difference to how I felt, to how, um, and also to how the healthcare professional in the appointment felt, because all of a sudden, this barrier had been taken away mm. because I'd been offered the medication. And so um, at that point, I asked it to be put on my notes that I should be prescribed that every time I went for a cervical screening. And that's what happens now. And it makes the world of difference it's like night and day what a difference it makes to me um but that that took again me really advocating for my needs me kind of doing my own research and trying to understand what might help me and then me going to ask for that nobody nobody offered it to me nobody offered me this as as an alternative yeah I think that's what the problem is it's like trying to get past the receptionist for me you know and it is there was there's no training there should be some form of you know the fact that you've had to research it yourself and go in and we all know that sometimes doctors and nurses nurses a little bit less but doctors they really don't like being told something and I think when we go in and say well we've researched we've done this research we've found this you know is this and they kind of look at you and some look at you as to say "Hmm, well don't know and then others kind of go actually no I'm not saying they're all the same but the fact that you had to do that research yourself but yet it wasn't readily available for them to understand your needs again it goes down to knowledge and it goes down to education. And I think it's also about having a flexible approach, mm-hmm. being being willing to think outside of the box. box. Yeah. Um, being being willing to to view us disabled people as not not only as patients, but but as people who have um, an active and varied life. Um, and that also as people who who are the experts in ourselves and our bodies we know yeah I, I, yeah I think people I think professionals find that very hard don't they that we know ourselves better than anybody else and when we start advocating and speaking for ourselves they get very oh. I think I think yeah I face challenges with that and I've also and I also want to say that I've faced really positive experiences with that and it is about often finding the right person for you to speak to absolutely and I think that's you know I think we spent a little bit of time there talking about the the challenges that we faced and how they've impacted us and I think that's so important because you know you and I know Kerry that this is something that impacts a massive amount of the disabled community. We speak to so many people who've had similar experiences. <clears throat> I find myself on forums, etc., for adult cerebral palsy. 
where there's there's women asking this question, asking how can I make it possible for me? And I share my own experience and that just kind of opens up, oh, this this might be a possibility actually if this has helped that person. So so you know I'm pleased we've talked about that and I think it's very important. And what I would like us to sort of move on to next is any advice that we can give to others who are listening who might be in a similar position. Um, any advice that we can give around overcoming some of these issues and challenges. So um, anything that you think from your own experience, the kind of support or accommodations that would make a significant difference to the experience of disabled people during screening appointments um, and potentially around um, any advice that we can give to disabled people around preparing for these type of appointments and the things that might help. Make sure you have a double appointment because a single appointment, sometimes you overrun. That would be my first bit of advice. Make sure that they are aware that you are a wheelchair user and if you need a hoist, that there is a hoist available. Um, make sure they understand that that hoist does need to be charged and take your time. If you feel over powered and pressure just kind of say to them please stop you know please can we take a breather this is a lot for me if you feel like you need to speak to the doctor beforehand because you you know you need to have that little bit more of a reassurance and some people prefer to know the doctor first or the nurse so have that conversation and just say you know, if you do get anxiety and you do get stressed easily, have that conversation before you enter the room. You know, even if you are in the room and you feel that pressure, just take your time. They are going to prefer, I've realised that the more that you talk and the more you say to them how you are feeling, it doesn't just educate them, but it does make them stop. Because I think sometimes professionals are in such a hurry to get everything done. That they don't quite realise that we are not as quick as they are. We can't just jump on the bed and raise our legs. We need that extra bit of help. So, yeah, they would be my bits of advice. And if you don't feel comfortable and you still don't feel comfortable when they're telling you this is what we're going to do. It's OK to say I can't do it today. Yeah, I would I would hugely agree with that last point, Kerry. You know, you can put all of the preparation in place you can do all of this stuff. But sometimes on the day, it's just not the right time for your body and your brain. And it's OK to say that I have been in that situation before myself. Um, and I think the you know the other things I wanted to pick up on from your point, if you feel you need to have a conversation in advance, if you feel you you know you want to make sure that it's somebody you know or you want to meet the person in advance, book a pre-appointment, book a yes. book a telephone appointment with your GP a couple of weeks before maybe to talk through some of these concerns. Um, and I think that talking is the absolute key here because um 
it's made such a difference to me in my I go into these appointments now and I tell them about everything that might happen if my muscles aren't behaving themselves this thing might happen that thing might happen this thing might happen this is the reason why and I actually find that the more I do that and the more frequently I do it the less frequently those things that I'm worried about actually happen because I've got all of the anxiety and worry about it out of my body I've 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 told somebody else what might happen and I think often particularly my own experience is that um I'm kind of trying to manage the the experience of the healthcare professional as well yeah. I'm trying to make sure that they're not too worried or too concerned if I get a leg twitch or something like that um but I find that by doing that actually it becomes um, um, a much calmer experience for everybody and I think the other thing that I wanted to say to pick up on your point about learning because this is so important almost all of the healthcare professionals that I've worked with over the last few years have learned something from working with me that they've carried forward to support their other patients better and I know that because they've told me they've told me at the end of our relationship when I've been referred on somewhere else they've told me how much they've learned from the experience of working with me and you know I suppose that's a double-edged sword because you know as disabled people we're not we don't exist to educate others that's that's not our reason for being but I always think that particularly when you're going through something challenging like this if you can use that challenging experience to create positive change then it wasn't all for nothing then no. it then, then then you know some then it, it almost feels like that challenge was it was a bit more worth going through yeah yeah I mean I think I, my last appointment that I had the doctor did say to me that you know there was some student nurses and doctors that were in the room and you know again my bit of advice is if that you're asked that and you don't feel comfortable saying no I'm like you say double-edged sword and we're not there to educate but I would rather educate than somebody else go through something so horrific in their mind that me giving the bits of advice that I give and saying to them you know this is how it makes me feel this is what you should be asking I may you know I'm okay but the next person you deal with may not be okay and may not feel like they can talk. Yeah, it's so important. And I think, you know, you've just reminded me of, of something that, that I've kind of taken forward through this process myself, which is each time I go for a cervical screening, I learn something a little bit more about me and my body and how to make it better and how to make it make it work for me and you know they're quite simple things so one of them is that I always ask the the nurse or the doctor to use the small small size speculum because that works really well for my body but they don't do that automatically you have to ask for it or you also or you almost have to go through that kind of trial and error of discovering that that's what you need so I make sure I ask for that as soon as I get into the room um and I also you know my legs aren't able to get into the stirrups and stay in the stirrups etc so I always ask for another doctor or nurse to be present to help me to get my legs into the position that I need to for this appointment mm. 
as I say, those things are really quite simple and straightforward, but they make such a difference to my own personal experience. I think it is that it's, you know, trying to use this as a learning opportunity and figure out what works best for you. So I'm going to take us on to our last section um, and, you know, all things considered that we've discussed prior to this, but we, we really do need to talk about the importance of timely screening and the importance of working with your healthcare professional to make sure that that happens in the best way for you. And Kerry, you know, you were, you were let down. On that on that basis for such a long long time um but i hope that that now that you've got things in place that means that you can have timely screenings etc when you need to yes i think that they are you know my gp surgery still can't cater for my needs so i am now referred directly to the hospital um to the gynecology section um i still have to phone and i still have to make sure that they are aware that i'm a wheelchair user and that i'm a double you know a double appointment um there are some general questions around why i need a double appointment and why i need this and how big the room is so i think there's there's still a lot of learning but I feel more comfortable knowing that I'm directly now when that letter comes through and I phone my GP surgery and I'm getting the answer of no from the reception. I can now turn around and say, can you refer me? Because that's generally what happens. Having that confidence to know that um that you're not going to face years and years of delays and um, you know i think we need to be quite careful here because we're all um we're all given the messaging that you have to accept your first appointment and you have to be seen as quickly as possible and you have to get your results as quickly as possible because that's what's crucial in preventing cervical cancer and we're all in agreement there but I think we have to recognise that sometimes there are barriers to disabled people attending these appointments, which means that they don't happen as quickly as we would like. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to take us on to sort of conclusion and summary. Um, I think that Kerry and I have hopefully shared with you all some of the different challenges that disabled people can face when trying to access cervical cancer screenings um, and that some of those um, some of those are more physical challenges in terms of making sure that logistically we have the things that we need and some of those are more kind of systematic challenges in that the services just aren't designed to be accessible to us or some of them may be more challenges with things like mental health and anxiety because of previous bad experiences that we've had trying to access these services. Um, I'd like to thank Kerry for um, being so open and honest in sharing her experiences. Um, it's had a really powerful impact on me, so I can only imagine the impact it's had on our users. So Kerry, please um, tell our listeners more about where they can find out um, about you and your work. 
You can find me on every social media platform possible. Um, you can just search me by Kerry Thompson, spelt with a P. Um, you will see my darling face. Um, I also run a blog, My Life Kerry's Way. You can find me there. But if you have any questions, please reach out. I'm always open to have a chat if you feel you need a private chat about your experience or about any experience or advice. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Kerry. Um, and I should also give a reminder, um, this is the Accessable podcast. You can use the Accessable website, which is accessable.co.uk, to find out um, accessibility information um, about healthcare settings, including hospitals and doctors' surgeries. And all of those venues have been visited in person by our trained surveyors, so we can guarantee a level of accuracy in that accessibility information. <coughs> Thank you to Kerry again. Thank you to our audience for listening to another episode of the Accessible Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Lucy Wood, without whom this podcast would not be possible. And do join us again soon for another episode of the Accessible Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Accessible Podcast. If you want to find out more about our work and mission, you can visit www.accessable.co.uk, visit our social media pages at Accessable UK on most channels, or email marketing at accessable.co.uk.